Make this song our prayer, O Lord God, that our words of our mouth, the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, the calling of our feet, the direction of our gaze, the attention of our ears, everything, Lord, that we set our affections upon would be that which brings glory to our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, the second person of the Trinity, who became man in the incarnation to save us from our sin. We, the lowly, undeserving, wicked and hell-bent, judgment-worthy sinners, have received the greatest of all gifts, even eternal life and reconciliation with the Father because of the overflowing mercies and the steadfast love of the God alone who has the power to save sinners and to put them in right relationship once again with what was lost in the fall. That is perfect covenanted fellowship with an almighty, holy, and eternal God who cannot suffer so much as a stain or a blemish in His presence because He is consecrated, holy, worthy, true, just, righteous, pure, and eternal. How can we, Lord, once dirty sinners, be cleansed from our sin? Only by the washing of the water of the work of Jesus Christ proclaimed in His Word and fulfilled on Calvary when that precious atoning blood was shed to wash away every blemish and stain, every bit of sin that would cling to us. The dirt of the fall has been washed away in a baptism of Christ's grace. And we, your people, praise you for this very thing. Today, furthermore, we ask that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word, in the testimony of the saints, in the encouragement of the church, in the grounding of the faithful as we seek to be faithful to proclaim your word. We pray that you would be glorified as we go forth from this place with hearts renewed, with the confidence that if our sins are atoned for and our life is hid in Christ Jesus, then who do we have to fear? Nothing. Christ is our victor. Lord, I pray that furthermore you would be glorified in the fellowship of the saints and in our prayers and in our convictions and in our steps of obedience this week as we seek to be glorified and transformed in the image of our perfect, sinless, glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his holy name. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, what a glorious gift and privilege it is to open up the Holy Scriptures wherein is proclaimed everything pertaining to life and godliness and the glory of our Lord and Savior revealed. Let us continue in a series touching upon a theme that we have explored and identified in the great dream that Jacob has in Genesis 28. And let me introduce today the first of a four-message Advent series, if you will, entitled Descending Angels. I have four messages outlined along this theme of descending angels, that is, the ministering spirits, the ministering celestial beings, those, and the, uh, that, those who occupy the holy realms of God's protected and glorious presence, descending, that is, coming to earth, visiting and appearing to God's people in our time and experience. Now, you'll recall the connection to uh, Genesis 28, I trust, and that this was the picture of Jacob's dream. Today, we will explore a descending angel, Gabriel, and his visitation to one Zechariah in Luke 1, 5 through 25. 
The aim of this morning's message and our series this month is to spotlight, to illuminate the connections between prophecy, miracle, visitation, and incarnation, which means, of course, God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, becoming a man to fulfill the covenant, to bear the burden of our sin, to satisfy our atonement, to rise again and to be ascended, to receive as his inheritance all the kingdoms of the earth and all the elect as a reward for his suffering. Today, I trust that we will see as the Spirit opens our eyes and gives me the ability to proclaim from his holy word, that there are connections between prophecies of old, miracles in real time, the visitation of the saints, including Zechariah, and the incarnation, Jesus Christ, heaven's stairway, touching earth. Today's title, again, is A Priest and Descending Angels. Descending angels to a priest named Zechariah. As you're able and with your Bible open to Luke chapter 1, let us stand for reverence for the holy and inerrant and infallible, immortal, Word of God. We're reading Luke 1, 5 through 25 this morning. Listen intently, intently with your ears tuned to the proclamation of God's holy scripture. Luke 1, 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And they had no child <clears throat> because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was, division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. And he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 16, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because, of you, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time for service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
a priest and a descending angel. In Genesis 28, 12, Jacob dreams of heaven's staircase touching ground, which we have touched upon a number of times in our Genesis series. In this supernatural covenant revelation, he is presented with a vision of the purpose and plan of God to bridge the divide between the eternally holy, the realms of glory, the preserved presence, the sanctuary of God's dwelling, and the fallen world and the sinners that inhabit it. Quote, Behold, this is Genesis 28, verse 12. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. We've mentioned briefly with a couple of examples in our series out of Genesis that throughout Old Covenant history, there are events from time to time which correspond to Jacob's prophetic dream. Glimpses, if you will, of heaven's staircase touching ground even before the arrival of Jesus Christ. One example would be Elijah's ascension by a fiery chariot unto glory. How is it? that Elijah was able to ascend without succumbing to the natural effects of the fall and the judgment due his sin unto heaven, it's because heaven's staircase touched ground and God's ministers, his angels, so to speak, condescended and bore Jacob and then ascended and brought him up the ladder, as it were. This is a picture in the Old Covenant of a fulfillment and an anticipation of the ascension of all who are in Jesus Christ, who are buried with Him and thus will be resurrected with Him up heaven's staircase to come. However, today we note that these glimpses do not even remotely approach the miraculous events in the era of Jesus Christ that signal the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. Jesus Himself announces to the, to the disciple Nathaniel, you'll remember in John 1:51, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, thus declaring Himself the staircase, the connection between heaven and earth, and thus declaring that this will be prophetically and, and obvious when the heavens are opened and angelic activity is visible and experienced by those whose eyes are opened, by the disciples who follow Him. And of course this happens. Jesus proclaims that in His incarnation, the staircase, He Himself, the staircase itself, has been established. Through Him, the promises of reconciliation with God will be realized. And true to Jesus' words, glorious revelation, heavens opened, and angelic activity, ascending and descending, signal heaven's staircase touching ground in our Lord. Think about those times in the Gospels of a little foretaste for future sermon series, perhaps. Think about those times in the Gospels where angels appear in Jesus' ministry. They're not too frequent. They're signal events, however, I submit to you. When those angels appear, when the heavens are open, you are seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Nathaniel. That heaven staircase is touching ground and something significant is happening. Pay attention. The events that attend the ascending and descending of God's celestial agents accomplishing His will and the heavens opened in revelatory glory to give a portal of view and a window, as it were, into the realms beyond what is otherwise veiled by our experience of the fallen world, both providentially and in our sin. When these events happen, 
realize what's going on. Events are taking place which will establish the, the reality of God's salvation so that you in Christ might ascend, if you believe and trust in His blood to atone you, unto glory one day via heaven's staircase. The heavens open, for instance, with the voice of the Father and the descending Holy Spirit, followed by ministering angels attending the Messiah. This is, of course, at its baptism and probation. Again, a future message. The heavens open again to reveal His glory and His departure to the cross at the Mount of Transfiguration, even as angels announce, quote, He is risen from His tomb just days later, confirming Jesus' death and resurrection. Finally, the heavens open to receive the victorious Son of Man, prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, as the angels assure Nathaniel and his followers, or and his fellow disciples, Jesus' followers, now, now staring up into glory, they assure them, just as he ascended, so he will descend, so he will return. It's, of course, in Luke chapter, Acts chapter 1, the ascension. Yet even before any of these moments of the Gospels, occasioned by the incarnation, these moments in the Gospels, occasioned by the incarnation countdown, if you will, and the announcement of history's red carpet unfurled for the coming of the second person of the Trinity, in Bethlehem's manger, we have the theme of today's message and several more. Angels were descending. Today is the first of four messages, as I told you, entitled Descending Angels. And in our text today, the silence of four centuries is broken by the angel Gabriel descending to the priest Zechariah. And this is where our text picks up today. A heading for you. Zechariah's visitation in light of three categories in our text. The occasion, first of all. Secondly, the message. And thirdly, the messenger. Heaven's staircase is extended to Zechariah in these instances, and it becomes clear that this is a miracle. This is prophecy. This is a visitation. And this is the eve of the incarnation. And all of these things are connected somehow in some glorious powerful, manifest revelation of God's Word now coming true. And there's really, it's an overwhelming study, but let us see what we might discover as we dig into this text. First of all, Zechariah's visitation and light of the occasion, Luke 1, 5 through 10. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Right from the beginning, you have a contrast or a juxtaposition, two things set beside one another to illustrate a difference. Herod is the king, the presumptive authority, but there is a priest named Zechariah, and there will be a king who will dethrone Herod and condemn him and his namesake later to a death by worms because they do not surrender and submit to the true king of kings, which doesn't come in, who doesn't come into the world bearing the obvious external, you know, amenities like robes and crown and accolades and, and dignified family status that's obvious to the people, but instead appears to one lone priest, Zechariah, when he is offering incense in this instance to a virgin who knew it, virtually no one, save her closest associations and relatives, knew the name of Mary, but soon all of history would record her as favored above, above women because of what God will do. 
uh, a barren, aged woman reminding us of Sarah in Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife. Shepherds in the fields, the lowliest of the vocations, receiving the most glorious of revelation as the heavens open and angels descend to announce to them that the incarnation is upon them. Anna and Simeon in the temple, faithful, aged believers, waiting for the knowledge and the arrival of Jesus Christ and so forth. Something is going on. And for those with ears to hear, hearts attuned and eyes to see, they were able to see the heavens opened and the angels of God, agents of His purpose and plan, ascending and descending upon the least of those who deserved it, even us, decrepit, judgment-worthy sinners, Eyes were being opened to the power of God and the prophecy of Jacob coming to pass in the work and the ministry and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Today, descending angels upon a barren priest. The occasion, who is this? A priest. But furthermore, this is a barren priest. This is a priest and a wife who have no children to boast of. And here, the visitation of Gabriel, the herald from the realms of glory, chose to visit first from the family of the priesthood, including Elizabeth's line, said of her that she is, after all, from the daughters of Aaron. Just as Jacob's call required faith, as his home was plagued by barrenness, so Zechariah's is as well, and now age has settled in. In addition, he learns that the promises of the covenant are more powerful than the ravages of sin, even the ravages of sin affecting the dead womb of his wife. The chosen one who will herald the Messiah who will overcome death in his ascent from the grave, the one who would announce his coming would overcome the deadness of the womb as a miracle of resurrection took place in his own conception. That is, John the Baptist was born of a barren womb by the power of a sovereign God to raise the dead to life. And this is why Zechariah and Part and Elizabeth are chosen for this miraculous event of being the chosen parents to birth the son, John the Baptist, who would announce the incarnation and point to our Savior and Lord and say with authority, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist himself was conceived through the resurrection of the barren womb. And in this instance, and in this miracle, we recall Abraham and Sarah, the aged and barren covenant parents of old. Nevertheless, there is a certain faithfulness that we also see spoken of and testified of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before the Lord and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I'm sure just like Abraham and Sarah, there were those moments of difficulty and anguish and trial as they sadly reflected on their married years in the absence of children. This was about to change, but they didn't know it. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they were faithful, and they, and they committed themselves to following the Lord. And this is an incredible testimony, I would say, and there's application for us as well. 
How often are we occupying times where our experience in God, God's promises are separated by a miracle? God's promises and the assurances of salvation and what we are standing in faith to receive, even the second coming of our Lord, or His manifest victory over the enemies that plague and assail us, the temptations in our own soul, and the enemies without that populate the wicked culture that we live in such as it is, how often do we feel like the victory of Jesus Christ over our circumstances and where we stand right now requires a miracle for the promises of God to be ours? The scriptures are written in part to give us faith, to be faithful and to serve him and to cling to his promises, his covenant and his word, just as Elizabeth and Zechariah did at this time, knowing that God has bridged heaven and earth by miracle before in the dream of Jacob. He's done it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he will do it again upon his return. And on that day, and the glorious condescension of Jesus Christ, the second time it will be such a victorious declaration of victory, including in his victorious parade and train, all of those innumerable elect who have now repented and believed following him, and behind them, every enemy that once shook its fist angrily in rebellion against our Lord and Savior is defeated and paraded before all of history for all to witness that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the angels have assured us that just as he ascended, so he will return. So just like Elizabeth and Zechariah required faith, their situation required faith that God would intervene with a miracle, connecting His promises to their experience so we can relate. God will, in His due course, connect the promises and His promises and our experience via miracle. This is proven in the fact that God blessed a barren priest and wife with child. The occasion. This is a singular location. That's just the, that's who this um, vision is revealed to. This visitation is revealed to a priest and a barren wife. But notice where it happens. Now, while he was serving as priest, verse 8, before God, when his division, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen to enter the temple by the Lord and burn incense. Where did Gabriel, the angel, appear to Zechariah with this message of heaven's staircase touching ground in the incarnation, to be announced by their son, to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest of prophets born of women, aside from Jesus Christ himself testified to by our Savior. Where did this event occur? It occurred in a singular location. It occurred in the temple, and it occurred in a particular event, the offering of incense. This is significant, because up until now, the place of God's provisional presence and abiding with men had been symbolized by a limited, specific, particular geographic location. That would be the temple, and more particularly the temple and tabernacle worship, where the ceremonial law was followed obediently. And in that, those steps of symbolic uh, submission to the Lord and His purposes, that is, His terms and conditions for atonement, the Lord would visit His people. And the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, and that entry point, that window, if you will, between the glories beyond and our sinful experience now was possible through the mercy seat, flanked by the guardian seraphim, only when the atoning blood was shed 
And it is in this situation, the place where these events stood, and at the altar where the incense arose before the nostrils of a sovereign God that Gabriel chose to reveal to Zechariah that the incarnation was knocking on the door of history and he and his wife would be privileged to bear the son who would proclaim and prepare the way for this very event by his prophetic ministry. The place of presence, prayers of the contrite, were symbolized by the offering up of incense. The law required a proper time, proper fire, uh, proper incense, proper uh, implements, proper priestly order. And when these conditions were met, it was a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. God had commissioned all of this in His ceremonial law. The altar of incense was to never burn out. The incense was to be offered continually. And as we see in our text today, it required a division of 24 groups of priests so that without fail, day after day, year after year, hour after hour, the prayers of the saints symbolized and the plight of the people symbolized in the rising incense would stand as an eternal reminder, as a perpetual reminder to the people that they stood in need of redemption and atonement. This incense was rising at the very moment when Gabriel stood just to the right of that very place and proclaimed to Zechariah, the priest who was dutifully offering the symbol of the prayers of the people, atonement is needed, <coughs> redemption is required, and this smoke symbolizes as much. This was the very moment that Zechariah received the message from the angel Gabriel who intervened in this singular location, this singular event, <clears throat> symbolizing that so long as sin plagued the heart and the experience of people, that there was a cry and a need for a sufficient Savior. The smoke had risen continually because, in part, the slaughter of <coughs> bulls and goats of old was insufficient to finally atone for sin. The incense eternally rose before the Lord, in part as a reminder that any stain, any blemish, any disqualifying factor in any one of us as sinners disqualifies us, shuts us out, renders us exiles, both from His presence and into judgment, because we do not deserve to stand before the holiness of God in the holy place. Psalm 141, verse 2 Revelation 5, verse 8. Revelation 8, verse 3. The prayers of the saints, those who cry out and cry to God and depend on Him for redemption and atonement <clears throat> are associated with the incense continually burning in this location. This occasion was not just, not just involved a barren priest, a singular occasion, but it also was a corporate event. Now, because of the way we're wired and I suggest our individual West, and a lot of times we see um, particular situations and individuals uh, emphasize in our reading to the, ex to the exclusion of what's really going on. And this may be one of those examples. I want you to notice how this wasn't just a personal experience that Zechariah has, but this is a corporate event that is happening. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And this signals to us that this answer to Zechariah's prayer is also an answer for a multitude that is praying. 
Now, people have speculated that Zechariah must have gone into the, this, and every time he had the rare occasion to step into the presence of God, no doubt he cried out for a son. After all, he and his wife were barren. I reject that. I don't think that's a correct assumption. I believe that Zechariah was a faithful priest, put himself and his own experience aside, and though that would have been a heart cry, certainly, and an individual prayer at any given time for this barren couple, nevertheless, at this moment, Zechariah, I submit to you, was offering prayers on behalf of a multitude. He wasn't just praying that he and his wife would be able to be blessed with a child. He was praying that God would visit miraculously according to prophecy and connect with visitation and by, and by any means necessary, even incarnation, provide for the people. And this is what a priest would do. He would stand in the presence of the Lord and offer as incense before the throne the cry of the people in their desperate need to be in good standing with him. And by some means, if God would be pleased that this blood by these animals that was shed on the altar, even the altar of incense had to be sanctified by the same. And this incense that continually arose before the throne, would you find favor? And would you prevent from, or and would you withhold your great judgment from us? And furthermore, would you provide a Messiah who would fulfill all these pictures such that a perfect high priest could arise? This is the barren priest crying out on behalf of the people. This is a singular location, the place of God's provisional reconciliation with men. And this is a corporate event, a priest who is crying out for atonement and redemption on behalf of the people of God. And this is a ritual I further suggest as old as Abel, the people of God, <clears throat> Adam and Eve in particular, are banished, they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. It cannot return. Kids, if Adam and Eve wanted to go back to the Garden of Eden, what would stop them from getting through? That's correct. The angels and a burning sword. But Abel, nevertheless, offered up pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. And the picture, I believe, and this comes from just a commentary that I've read through the years, and it's quite beautiful. The picture, I believe, is that Abel set up his altar at the base of Eden's hill, Eden's mountain. We see in further references in the scriptures that Eden was on a high place, which would make sense. God's symbolic places, geography, representing connection between him and man, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, Mount of Olives, and so forth, Mount Moriah. This is a common symbol in scripture. So imagine this, Abel sets up, he builds an altar at the base of Eden's hill. And as he's offering that pleasing aroma, these animal sacrifices and that incense is arising, this priestly figure, Abel, looks up the hill and what does he see? He sees those seraphim you kids just mentioned, those angels, the guardians of the presence, the sanctuary of God's holy habitation, and he sees a flaming sword. And he knows he cannot pass unless and only if what is symbolized in this act of incense rising before the throne somehow holds out hope of his entry. And Abel's faith <clears throat> was satisfied and was rewarded with the only sacrifice that would secure his entry. And he, like all the saints of old, would one day go past the sword and past the guardian cherubim via Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice and his shed blood. When Christ's blood was shed on Calvary, 
And that incense of his death, as it were, arise, arose before the throne. The gates of heaven were thrown open. And now the angels of God's purposes ascend and descend to collect from the four winds of the earth all of the elect. And this was symbolized in history, literally, when the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Thus, it is no surprise that announcement of these events that would lead to this very reality happens at the place, the temple, during an event, the arising of incense before the nostrils of the sovereign God by a priest who is representing the people crying out for atonement and redemption. And it is under these circumstances and in this occasion that God visits Zechariah and answers his prayer and the prayers of the people. Major point number two, Zechariah's visitation in light of not just the occasion, but the message. Verse 11, the angel Gabriel speaks. There appeared to him, that is to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Then verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John meaning, the Lord is gracious. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name, the Lord is gracious. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is the message. And I trust if you've been in the Lord very long, if you study your Bible and the, uh, message, or, and the references and the prophecies that preceded this moment, there's a lot that rings a bell. Perhaps the first thing is the response. The first impression that Zechariah has when he's visited by the angel. If you were visited by an angel, I wonder how you'd respond. Well, you don't have to imagine or speculate too much because it is such a common pattern in Scripture. The initial first response of a sinner undeserving the holy presence of God when he sends one of his from the realms of glory, whether it's a theophany, that is, appearance of God himself in a different form, or an angel one of his own, like Gabriel, commissioned to herald and to accomplish his purpose, the universal reaction among sinners is fear. <clears throat> and Zechariah is no exception. He was troubled, and when he saw him, fear fell upon him. Why? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3, and let's read that one verse that the kids reminded, of us, reminded us of earlier. Genesis 3, 24, you remember the circumstances. Adam and Eve had sinned against the Lord, broken covenant with him. Judgment has visited them. The Lord arrives in this parousia, which is Greek for coming, and he doesn't come to bring them up the ladder, to, ascend the, to assume them to glory. No, he comes with a judgment declaration because they have transgressed his holy law. And now they must learn in their own experience that the wages of sin is death. And therefore the Lord, what does he do? Verse 24, he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and flaming sword 
that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What would it feel like to be literally driven out of the place of reconciliation and favor and presence and holy abiding with the sovereign God, the one who has breathed into your uh, who has breathed into your very being in the case of Adam and made you a living flesh, pulled a rib from his same side and created you as Eve. What would it feel like to be driven, driven out of his presence, kicked out, kicked out, and then the door slammed shut? And now every time you look at that place, of that holy presence of the Lord, where you once knew that glorious fellowship with him, it's guarded by fearsome angels who are capable of slaying with a fiery sword in an instant, bringing God's judgment upon anyone who would transgress his holy law. The wages of sin is death, and that fiery sword will kill anyone who dies in their trespasses and sins, not just in a grave to succumb to the elements of this world, but to send you to hell eternal where that fiery sword never dies but inflicts upon the soul forever the wages of sin, the wrath of a holy God. When an angel, a guardian of God's holy presence, invades the space of a mere mortal sinner, it makes sense ever since Eden, Eden that your first reaction is fear. And this is why Zechariah reacts as he does, as does every mere mortal in the presence of a holy God. First impressions of angels strike fear over and again since Genesis 3.24, I submit. The history of redemption and the role of angels changes after the garden and after the fall. Now they become the guardian cherubim who prevent entry by the rebels into the holiness of God and they guard it. They guard the perimeter, slamming shut any access unless and until a miracle of prophecy fulfilled and miracle accomplished and visitation and incarnation and atonement is satisfied in every last particular condition of re-entry is established. And this is what's going on. <clears throat> Instinctively, the mortal sinner confronted by the holy Given the memory of Eden, plaguing the consciousness of, human, of the human race is terror. Instinctively, the mortal sinner confronted with the holy, given the memory of Eden, plaguing the consciousness of the human race since the fall is terror. This is why the gospel comes first to proclaim our guilt. It's by design. The consciousness of the human sinner since the fall is a healthy thing. It tells us the truth of our condition. That first response that Peter had when Jesus did a miracle among the disciples, depart from me, I'm a man, I'm a sinner. That first response, that initial reaction of Isaiah, who saw the heavens open and the seraphim guarding the holy presence of God, I am a man of unclean lips, woe is me. It makes sense. It makes sense ever since Eden. In the case of these men, Isaiah, Peter, Zechariah, they were able to abide in the presence of the holy, even God's agent from the realms of glory, because that arrival did not signal instant death, because a miracle of atonement was going to happen. A miracle of redemption was about to be accomplished. Angels, post-fall, served two roles. One, 
to wield the sword of fiery judgment against all impostors and trespassers of the holiness of God's habitation. Two, to announce that a narrow door has been opened through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ alone, who upon the mercy seat of God's holiness and wrath was slaughtered so that the curtain that separated the sinner from the presence of Almighty God might be torn and through his flesh we might enter in to perfect restored fellowship. This is why Zechariah could stand in the presence of an angel who would otherwise kill him and hear these words, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The Lord is gracious, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink, drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. The message of Zechariah's visitation is the terror and trauma of Eden is overcome in the message of the incarnation. The way is being prepared. A prophet is being consecrated, set apart, commissioned, and anointed. Even though himself a sinner, John the Baptist, he's anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit in the once dead womb of his mother before he even breathes his first breath. This is the power, this is the grace of a sovereign God. In the birth of John, is it not true and evident that the Lord is gracious, who can save a soul from the womb if he so chooses, who can awaken those dead in sin to regeneration as the Holy Spirit Breathe life, just as the Spirit breathed life into Adam in the first place. Adam became a living, living, breathing being, and so we become a living, breathing new creation. And John the Baptist foreshadows, he signals these events taking place, even in his own experience. And this is why many will rejoice at his birth. If you're lost and you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're not going to rejoice. You don't even understand what's going on. Who's this guy with long hair? and a diet of honey and locusts telling me what to do. I have power and influence. I come from a privileged family. I'm a Pharisee of noble birth. I'm Herod. I rule this place. Oh, you think a baby born in Bethlehem is going to depose this king? I think not. Why don't you come back and tell me, implied as there's a great reward, when three dignitaries from the east, normally predisposed, you know, to be in the good graces of this king, are warned in a dream by a greater king still, and it's, no, nope, we're not going back. We're going right back, praising the Lord, to, and bring the good news of a savior and a king of kings more powerful than Herod, though lowly in a manger, back to our place of origin, and announce to the distant east that Christ has come. This is the kind of thing that's going on. The fear of Eden is overcome in the message of Zechariah's visitation, and the answered prayers of the wise men of the east and the shepherds in the field and the barren priests who offered this incense and the aged elderly saints, Anna and Simeon in the temple and Mary, the chosen one, and Elizabeth, the wife of the priest, all of these prayers and the multitude who gathered with hearts in tune with God's purposes to provide a Messiah in his due time that stood outside the courts as the hour of incense commenced and those prayers arose before the throne of God. The prayers of all these were answered in the incarnation and John the Baptist was about to be born and proclaim as much and to say repent and to make the way straight for the coming of the Lord. This morning we, spo we spoke of how the silence 
of the, uh, we sung, excuse me, of how the silence of the intertestamental period was broken. And I love that line in the song we sung in the, um, I can't even, I can't recall it off the top, but the baby's cry, the uh, 400 years of silence was broken by a baby's cry. And poetically, of course, that is true. When Jesus Christ uttered his first cry after being born of a virgin Mary, something had changed. But let me submit to you that the silence, the prophetic silence was broken some years before Jesus' first cry, and we are reading of a breaking of the prophetic silence in the words of Gabriel in our text today. In truth, the prophetic silence was broken right there 400 years later, and it's as if it in fact is the case that the Spirit of God picked up on prophecy exactly where he had left off 400 years ago. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. The very last words of the Old Testament, even in the order of our canon, proclaim the following. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's, uh, in movies, when something cataclysmic happens, there's like, and you can get this, the full effect in a theater with Dolby surround sound or whatever they use. And um, Isaac Oman can tell me the name of this bass impulse. One time I called and I'm like, what is this thing, this bass sound in a metal song every once in a while that comes up that's so heavy and, it, and, it, and it's like so profound and it's just like, whoa. Anyways, in my mind, I have this sound in my head in Dolby surround where this bass impulse just above the last thing that the human ear can hear and a collapse and a crash and a crescendo are all happening at the same time. At the close of Malachi's words, I, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And then boom. I can't really make the sound, but boom. And then the curtains collapse, and then everything goes dark. The theater goes dark, I imagine in my mind. And everyone sits, dumbstruck in silence for four centuries. So a picture of the desperate cry in the dark, wondering if and when these words would come to fruition. We know the answer. All of a sudden, with the hum of a million generators and the meridian heat of a thousand suns, to borrow language that I recently cited from another author, and a nuclear bomb of God's revelation, and the switch of the power source of all of revelatory history kicks on, and there's this huge rush of energy as Gabriel announces to the once barren priest and he will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will be, go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience of the wisdom, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And the lights of sovereign revelation come on after 400 years of silence 
and will never be shut off. Will never be shut off. Because the light has come. Jesus has invaded history. It is finished upon the cross. He rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And this earth and our nation and your life is his footstool. There is no circumstance, there is no situation, there is no imposter, no authority, principality that rules and reigns in some temporal way that could ever turn off the lights of God's sovereign revelation. It is finished, it is complete, and it forever rings as a beacon of hope and only those who are willfully, absurdly, stupidly, sinfully blind scream at the top of their lungs, plug their ears, and cover their spiritual eyes. Those are the only ones who can't see it, which is a lot of people. But as the gospel goes forth, by the grace of God alone, the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see that Christ has come. And the 400 years of silence is broken by the announcement of Gabriel himself. Christ has come. Christ will come. And so he has. And this is where we are in history as we read. The prophetic silence of 400 years is broken. Just like that, the bridge between God's last words spoken in Malachi chapter 4 and his first words spoken by Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 is bridged and the word of God picks up exactly where it left off. And I'll remind you, the same will happen with Christ's return. The, what did the angels say? He ascended into glory. And how many of us have felt just, you know, we can relate to the staring up into the skies. When will the silence be broken? And the angels appear to the disciples and say, just as he ascended, he will return. Go, get busy. Tell the word of Gabriel to all that you come in contact with. And that is our call right now. And I don't care how many thousands of years it takes. You cannot shut off the light of God's revelation. And that word is as powerful now as it was the day it was spoken at the, before the altar of incense in the temple as Zechariah was praising and worshiping and praying before the Lord. And so we know what to do. Finally, this morning, Zechariah's visitation in light of the occasion, the message, and the messenger. Who is this guy? Who is this angel? <clears throat> Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. Turn with me, by the way, to... Daniel chapter 9. For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, verse 19, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. This is who it is. Who is this Gabriel? The only other reference that I know of in the Scripture where Gabriel is revealed by name comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 9. While I was speaking and praying, the prophet says, in verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Confessing my sin and the sin of my people, presenting my plea before the Lord for the holy hill of my God, priest, temple, incense, prayers, 
While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision of the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Seventy weeks. And those seventy weeks... We're counting down 70, 69, 68, 67. We imagine it in our mind as those 400 years tick off, corresponding to this prophetic pause and God's purposes. Until that day, five, four, three, two, one. And then as we said before, the light of revelation is turned on and behold, an angel appears to another priest, offering prayers, Zechariah, on behalf of the people, upon the hill, and, and crying out in their place. And what does Gabriel say? Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. You will have joy and gladness. You will bear a son. He will be great before the Lord. He will turn the many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Part of the reason, I believe, why Zacharias chastised in this moment and his lips are sealed is because he knows full well who this is. He knows that Gabriel's last words to the prophet Daniel were, there's coming a time in the not-so-distant future in the cosmic scope of things where I will make an end of atonement and transgression, and I will present a holy king in sacrifice to satisfy and answer the prayers of the people, crying out from, uh, for a deliverer from the days of Daniel before all the way up to Zechariah. That is to say, the next time Gabriel appears, it will be to announce that fulfillment. That is Gabriel's ministry. And so this is who I am. I am Gabriel, he says, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, the very good news he had brought to Daniel centuries before. And so this is the messenger, Gabriel's ministry. We last record, beheld him in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and during Daniel's offering in incense, proclaiming this vision, this priestly occasion of the reality of atonement, righteousness, a holy place, an anointed one, and a prince who would deliver the people. And this presence is truly an unspeakable reality. And the right thing for anyone to do is, in a situation, an occasion like this, I trust is better represented by Elizabeth and Mary than it is Zechariah. He protested like Abraham and Sarai of old, Abram and Sarai of old. Ah, yeah, but how is this even possible? I am old, and he should have known better. He had the testimony of the forebears in the faith. He had the testimony of Zechariah's prophecy to Daniel. He was a priest. He knew these things. Zip it, Zechariah. This event will speak for itself. And so it went. The angel said to him, 
I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You think the deadness of a womb, how many years you've waited, and your age can stop the power of a sovereign God to set up a stairway and a ladder joining heaven and earth in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, God made flesh, born of a woman in his perfect time as prophesied of old to unite to himself a people who had placed faith in his power to atone. The people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and those of the faithful who gathered there, waiting for signs of hope, you can almost see the ticking time, you know, in the mind that something's going on. The suspense starts to build. There's a mystery to the eyes and the countenance of this priest as he comes out. Pay attention. God may be intervening. And for those who had eyes to see, wow. What would they behold in the coming days and weeks? They would behold descending angels upon Jacob's ladder, not just visiting a priest, but in the testimony of those who would follow him, visiting a virgin, visiting shepherds, and visiting others. And the Lord himself, and then John the Baptist, and his heralding message, introducing and pointing to the Messiah to come. And then the heavens opened, and the loudspeaker of glory, God the Father, announcing this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the beginning of it all in the New Covenant era. The occasion, the message, and the messenger all help us uh, re understand Zechariah's visitation in the light of heaven's staircase touching ground. And of course, his words in an instant were miraculously uh, confirmed. When a miraculous birth, a conception which had been the pattern of God prophetically through the ages, happened and Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, and then she cried out the affirming worship of the sister in the faith who long preceded her, Rebecca, and Rachel. Rachel, that is to say, the Lord has removed from me my reproach. So the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And this was just the first in the New Covenant era of a miraculous birth. Of course, you know the one to come, announced by angels to shepherds, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ, would enter this world. And this ties to our experience as well. If you're a believer in the sound of my voice, you've experienced a miraculous birth, as I am often fond of saying. When the Lord regenerates you, the Bible calls it being born again. This goes right alongside, right hand in hand with the pattern of God's miraculous intervention in history. You may be praying for someone that you don't think could ever change. Do so with the faith of Zechariah's eyes wide open when he realized that God can cause a dead womb to be resurrected to life. Be encouraged to pray for those, the lost that you have reached out, pray maybe your loved ones, your family members, a co-worker, a friend that you've interceded for and it's discouraging because you don't see any change, pray with renewed faith. 
God can move heaven and earth. That the one who has power over the grave can open blind eyes. The one who opened the womb of the once uh, Elizabeth, uh, aged just like Sarah, can open the heart of an unbeliever. They might be regenerated and born again. So miraculous events are happening are evident in the text, and they mean to build our faith and point us to a sovereign God who awakens the dead. As we transition to communion this morning, I'd like to turn you back one more time to Daniel chapter 9. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seventy weeks. For the sixty-two weeks shall be built again with squares and moat, but in the troubled time and after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. As we read these words, some of it may appear mysterious to us because it's couched in this prophetic language but others could not be more clear. When was this fulfilled, ultimately, finally, precisely? That there would be a finishing of the transgression when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. When was it fulfilled, this message from Gabriel of old to Daniel in chapter 9, to put an end to sin? It was finished when Jesus shed his blood, the sinless blood on Calvary, as an incense, an atonement, that arise before the Lord, securing your entry through the now torn veil into His presence forever. When did He atone for iniquity? On that same cruel instrument of torture, where an innocent man, God in flesh, was put to death by the wrath of God, pleased the Lord to crush Him, that He may secure our redemption. And when was it accomplished that He would bring in everlasting righteousness, when our Lord ascended to receive us his inheritance, the kingdoms of this earth, and to rule and reign until every enemy, even death itself, is placed under his footstool, and he will bring in his full consummate kingdom on that final day. And when was this vision and prophet sealed? It's when Christ was anointed, when he was commissioned, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove at the day of his baptism, wherein his baptism and probation prepared him, consecrated and set him apart as a significant son to come who would accomplish these very things prophesied by Gabriel of old. Now Gabriel says it's time to Zechariah, and this meal proclaims to us that he has come. When you taste the bread upon your lips today, when the cup is poured down your throat, I pray that you hear the words of Gabriel, proclaim to Zechariah, proclaim to Daniel, proclaim through Jesus, it is finished. When the red carpet of history's purposes rolled out to receive Christ, the incarnate one, when heaven's staircase touched earth, it was to accomplish this very thing, that you might be reconciled with a holy God. If you do not know him in the sound of my voice today, Perhaps your heart has been moved with the terror I mentioned at the beginning of this message. I'm a guilty sinner. I deserve the fiery sword of God's wrath. Would you this day turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ? You do deserve wrath. You do deserve death because of your transgression of His holy law. Nevertheless, 
If Christ takes the sword in his side for you, so to speak, and through his very wounds, access into his holy presence, upon his very mercy seat, is secured for you, that you might be freed from your sin. And this is what this meal proclaims to us. Is remembered and proclaimed in this covenant feast, yea, even this day, even right now. So those of you who are believers in this room, this table is open to you because the fiery sword has been sheathed. It's been sheathed in the side of your Messiah. And the gates once guarded by the seraphim are open that you might enter in. And thus the Lord's table is open to you. But if you are in the hearing of my voice and have not repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, as it were, there stands before this table seraphim and a flaming sword. You are not welcome until you repent. And the scriptures tell us that if you repent and turn to him, he will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. But on that very day when you place all your faith and trust in him, the gates of Eden will swing open and you will have free access because God is that gracious. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the powerful revelation in your Holy Scripture that comes to us reminding us of the significance of the great gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you sow the truth and the confidence and the reality of these things even deeper within the fabric of our being, we pray, through the proclamation of your word and, and in the participation, partaking at your table this day, O Lord. I pray that you would encourage and equip your church to these means and that you would call the lost to salvation through the same, that your name might be proclaimed, your kingdom might advance, that you would be glorified, magnified, and exalted on the praises of your redeemed people. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.